The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Welcome. Glad to see you here this morning. You know, we've, we've, um, we've just sung of Emmanuel, God with us, that the eternal Son of God, He humbled Himself, not clinging to the glory that is His, but emptying Himself. Emptying himself, not not by subtraction, but by addition. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Think of it. God the Son entered into his own creation and he learned. He learned. He read of himself. He practiced the traditions of his people, traditions that pointed to him. Now, okay, Thanksgiving, we've just celebrated. Thanksgiving, it's a very much a, a, an American tradition. But to be thankful is not only something that we, that we should be, but something that God actually commands of us. Yes, okay, you've noticed, haven't you? The Christmas decorations are up. And it's okay, because Thanksgiving's over, right? It's safe for us to do this. Right? No grumbling about that. But you know what? This is a really, this is a unique year. Because um, I think it might be the only year, maybe one in seven, that we have five uh, Sundays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Great for retail. Um, a little weird for, for Christmas because we're so used to going right into uh, Advent and having our table up here and doing our Advent readings next week. So next week we begin Advent. So I'm still thinking, I know, I think Pastor Dale always said, you know, if you're going to preach on a holiday, you should do it the Sunday before, not after. Okay, it's a unique year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little Thanksgiving message after. So we're going to look at Psalm 136 this morning. Um, the word Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And there are, there are many psalms that tell us, praise the Lord. Psalms that begin and end with the command, praise the Lord. And these are referred to as Hallel psalms. Psalm 135 is a, it's, it's one of these Hallel psalms. It's, it's like a call to worship that introduces Psalm 136. Psalm 136, which is known as the Great Hallel. We praise God by giving thanks. And Psalm 136 begins and ends with this command. And the entire psalm tells us why we should give thanks. And that all of these reasons have to do with God's covenantal, always enduring love and mercy for us. It begins by telling us, give thanks to the Lord. And then it goes on to give verse after verse telling us why, why we should give thanks because of who he is and what he's done. It's the perfect Psalm for Thanksgiving. You know, our men's group meets Wednesday mornings via zoom. And, um, we've been working through the Psalms for a couple of years now. And we landed on this very Psalm, uh, this last Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, 
And, and Justin Knight, with not such a straight face, says, Wow, that's amazing, Pastor Brian, how you planned it. So we end up on Psalm 136 the day before Thanksgiving. And I said, Yes, isn't it? It's amazing. My, my planning. No, clearly it was the providence of God. And so I thought, with this extra Sunday... Let's give thanks. Let's give thanks in a, in a different sort of way. Maybe, a, maybe in a way that you've never experienced before in a church service. This might, be, this might be really unique for you. As you know, the Psalms, well, they're songs. They're, they're meant for corporate worship. And when you look at Psalm 136, you see, you see 26 verses... With a repeated chorus after each verse saying, For his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. 26 times there's this, there's this back and forth. And what we should picture is a worship service where the, where the priest, or in this case the pastor, declares the verse. And after each verse, the congregation responds with the chorus. So we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I need, you to, I need you to prepare yourself for this. I need you to be enthusiastic. I actually heard a recording of one church do it. They started out really strong. And then in the middle, and then at the end, you could barely hear anyone saying the chorus. So you need, to, you need to prepare yourself. You need to be enthusiastic because this is your part in the worship service. You need to, you need to get out of your, this American mindset because, you know, we've been so programmed to be bored with repetition. And I don't want you to fade by the 17th time of saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is kind of ironic, too, because we should endure in saying this. God's love is steadfast. So in declaring this truth, it's appropriate for you to be steadfast in your volume and enthusiasm in declaring this great truth. So as you've noticed, we've been... We've been adding some responsive readings to our worship services because... Um, a point that I really want to drive home is that worship is not simply it's not simply the musical portion of the service, and it wasn't meant to be like a like a concert where you passively sit and appreciate the performance or a lecture that you're just sitting through. Um, not like a concert where you know you just. You're just enjoying the musicianship or the voices. And if you're a real fan and know some of the words, you sing along. It's not like that. No, worship is each element of this service. It's the coming together of the people of God. It's coming together corporately, entering into God's presence. It, it is the expression of his worth or praise or, or giving praise to the Lord, giving thanks. Worship, think of worship, break down the word. Worship means worthship. It has to do with God's worth. 
And we praise him through the we praise him through the reading of his word, through corporate responses of scripture and biblical truth, through the, the giving of your gifts, through singing songs that are centered on who he is and what he's done for us. So more and more I want I want us to see this this entire service as worship. And that you've come you're getting ready, you're coming to church, not, not as some passive audience. No, you've come as an active member with a part to perform, do, offer, is a better word. Even when I'm, even when I'm doing most of the, the speaking here, when I preach, your part, you have a part even in that, to receive to receive the word of God, to be devoted to his truth by paying attention and maybe maybe taking a note or, or okay, I know this is wild, maybe even responded with, a, with an amen or a yes. It really, it's okay. I want to assure you that. It's okay. And it's okay if you don't. I'm not, I'm not looking for any affirmations here. Um, but I also don't want you to bottle it up. Because you think it's, oh, it's maybe inappropriate. Some of you have actually told me that you want to shout out a yes or an amen. But, but you say, but our congregation seems so quiet. And it seems inappropriate. It's not. And certainly we've been, you know, we've been well taught over the years to, to not react to various noises. To love each other in ways that, you know, people who are affected by disability they can relax they can feel safe and at home not judged right so we of all people we should be we should be accustomed to some noise and we're okay with a little with some hearing some sounds and not reacting in a negative way to that so feel free but keep in mind that okay there should be order to a worship service you're not you're not meant to take over and if it's not a positive response that you, that you just feel the urge to express, if it's not positive, well, I want you to think of Priscilla and Aquila and come to me afterwards. You know, and then we could talk about maybe your negative impression of what was said. So that being said, an important part of our worship is to see ourselves not as an audience but participants. We, so we're, we're meant to sing. We're meant to sing. We're meant to be a part of responsive readings. We're called to give. All of these things work to change us. And we, and we do so in faith. Expressing God's worth. Acting out the truth that we know. That the church is the body of Christ. And that we, as a part of this body, live not as individuals, but as a community that glorifies God. Psalm 136, it's meant to be a part of our worship and expressed responsively and corporately by the people of God. But again, very repetitious, very repetitive, and we need to know that, okay, not all repetition is vain, right? We have a negative concept of repetitive things. 
Not all repetition is vain. A big criticism of modern worship has to do with it being so repetitive, right? Uh, some even joke by calling a lot of the modern worship songs 7-Eleven songs. Do you know this one? I've heard it from some of you, so I know that you know this. 7-Eleven songs, songs with only seven words sung 11 times. But what we're about to do, it's 26 times, okay? 26 times, so don't get hung up on repetition as much as what it is that we're repeating. The better focus is whether it's, whether it's deep truth. Deep truth or whether it's vain. Whether it's God-centered or, or a repetition of man-centered experience and how, how we feel. Psalm 136, it's deep. It's wonderful repetition. And remember that when you, when you see repetition in the Bible, what does that mean? It's like an exclamation point. Holy, holy, holy. Or when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's like, oh, pay attention. <laughs> this is something extraordinary special that he's, he's going to give, right? Okay, so with that in mind, um, let's begin. Let's begin in prayer. Pray with me, please. Lord God, thank you for inviting us to enter into your presence. Thank you for calling us and adopting us as your own. For your covenant promise of blessing that's ours because Jesus has done it for us. And it is ours according to your grace through faith in him. So we give thanks. We give thanks for your word and the truths it reveals about you. And that your love for us is steadfast, enduring forever. We give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. You ready? Stand if you're able. Follow along with your part, reciting aloud the highlighted chorus. Here we go. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea.
to him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Oh, this is the word of God. You may be seated. That was great. Good job. Glorifying to the Lord. Well, it's always a time of thanksgiving. Even in times of pain and suffering, we are to give thanks to God because his steadfast love endures forever. It's interesting to hear, isn't it? To hear an unbeliever speak of being thankful during the Thanksgiving holiday. And I wonder if this is just another evidence that everybody knows God exists. If not God, then to whom are they thankful? To themselves and and their hard work and earning the things that they enjoy? To their parents? To, To fate in allowing them to be born in the country where they enjoy so many freedoms? To, To maybe those who fought to give us the freedoms that we enjoy? But isn't there, isn't there a logic that works like the truth of creation, intelligent design? That there's always a cause that came before the cause that came before the cause, taking you all the way back to some kind of beginning. And the only truth that makes any kind of sense is that there must be an uncaused cause. There must ultimately be an eternal God who is the source of each benefit for which you are Thankful. Yes, be thankful for your parents and be thankful for your country and all of the various benefits you have received for the enjoyment of life. But there's a logical depth, a depth that enables these to be a benefit to you. And our faith tells us of God who he is and what he's done so that, so that you can respond in thankful worship. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There's a depth that's thankful for many things and these, these are intended to lead you to their source, which is the one true God who provides for all of his creation and more specifically to those who are in covenant relationship with him. His covenantal love is constant and will endure forever because he is faithful. It will endure forever forever to those whom he's promised to love through his own provision of Jesus. 
Psalm 136 begins by telling us, uh, not suggesting, but in the imperative, commanding us to give thanks to the Lord. And then verse 1 tells us the overarching why. Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Okay, many, many years of parenting has taught me the answer to this question. And though implied here, it's not the answer that, that's given in this psalm. Parents, when you, when you tell one of your children to do something and they respond by saying, why? What do you say? Come on, you know it. It's uh, because I said so, that's why. And yes, it's implied throughout the psalm in saying that God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ultimate authority. If there's any of, anything people look to for their provision and help, treating it like a God, well, our God is God over that. If there's any Lord that you obey and who settles matters of justice, well, yes, submit to these governing authorities. But the reason you do so is because our Lord has sovereignly put them in place. He is Lord of all lords. He is the uncaused caused who is sovereign over all. So our parental answer, because I said so, is certainly implied here. But the more direct answer to why we should give thanks to God is because he's good. Oh, he's good. Jesus said, Jesus said, if, if you then, as an earthly father, who are evil or corrupted by sin, if you know how much, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, good things to those who ask Him? Okay, parents can be selfish. But they know what's good and they want to be good to their children. They want to do what's best or good for them. And we understand this. So, so let this truth, this realization, inform your view of God. Generally speaking, we think of parents as knowing how to give good gifts to their children. We trust their intentions, even though they're not perfect. So if we know who God is, if we know that he is perfect, then why do we sometimes trust our parents more than we trust God? He's perfect. There's, there's no variation, no change in the goodness of God. His love is steadfast and eternal. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. Why are we told to give thanks to God? Not only because he, being perfect, knows how to give us good gifts, but he is good. Your concept and definition of good comes from God. He is the source of all good because he is good. Look at verse 1. We could read it as 
Give thanks to the Lord because He is good and because He does what is good by showing us a steadfast covenantal love and mercy forever. And I say mercy because it's interesting. Some of the translations read for His, instead of for His steadfast love endures forever, they read for His mercy endures forever. And they do so because God's covenantal love is a gracious display of His mercy. We don't deserve God's love. But God has chosen to have mercy on whom he has mercy. In his mercy, he has chosen to love us. It's not because we've earned it or deserved it or we're lovable people. His love is a merciful love. Oh, isn't God good? Isn't he good? Isn't he good to us? So the logic of Jesus' statement in Matthew 7 should also, it should also work in reverse. Not only does this say, if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, then how much more does God? But the reverse is also true. And so we should say, if we know that we should give thanks to our earthly fathers who give us good things, then how much more should we give thanks to God? God who is the source of all good and is in his very nature good. We say it. We we say God is good all the time. And of course it's true because what else would he be? One of the attributes of God is said to be his, have you heard this one? His simplicity. The simplicity of God. What it means is God is perfectly one. That he is not a bunch of various disconnected, unrelated attributes or attributes that that are opposite or even doing battle against each other. And with, with that wrong view of God, what do people do? They Well, they hope for the merciful and loving God. Instead of the just and wrathful God, they they want the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. No. His simplicity means he is one. That his wrath is a loving wrath. That his love is, is just. That his mercy is good and his goodness is also seen in his justice and so on. They're all related. God is not divided in the essence of who he is. So give thanks because God is good. He's good all the time in all that he does, in all in, in all who in who he is. We don't have a we don't have some concept of of good and then apply it to God as if good exists independent of God or according to our own definition of good. No, in the beginning, God. Before there was anything, God exists. He's the uncaused cause, self-existent. I am. He alone is eternal. He creates and he declares his creation what? Good. He defines good. And so the great promise of Romans 8 assures us of good, saying that God is sovereignly working all things in your life for the greatest good of all, which is our conformity to Jesus. 
a circumstance, a cer- yes, many circumstances in and of themselves. They may be terrible. They may even be evil. But God is so great that we can even give him thanks in the midst of these kinds of circumstances, in the midst of any hardship and suffering, because he promises that he's working all things, even this, for the greatest of all good. He's that great. He is that powerful. He is that wise. Working even this for the greatest of all good for those who are called by him, those who love him, those in covenant with him. So back in Psalm 136, we don't only give thanks to God when he does the good that we like. We give thanks to the Lord because he is good. And all of his works in our life are for the purpose of good. His love toward us is steadfast. It's constant and unchanging. And it never, never comes to an end if you belong to Jesus. Never comes to an end. Give thanks for this. It's right for us to do so. It's it's good for us to do so. It's good for us. Concerning God's goodness, Charles Spurgeon wrote, he is, beyond, he, he is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, the rewarder of good. For this, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. In saying all of this, it highlights the importance of, of, well, of knowing God, doesn't it? It's really important that we know who God is. And the way that we know God is to see who he has revealed himself to be. And God's most specific, he has a general revelation. He shows us himself in creation. We can learn a lot about God by looking at the beauty and glory of his creation. But most more specifically, God's specific, special revelation of, of himself is found, of course, in the written word, in the Bible. We must read it. <laughs> we must study it. And a word for the study of God is what? Theology. Some of you bristle at that. Some of you are like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's important for us to remember theology is not the end in and of itself. The goal is not theology. No, theology is meant to create a response in us, to change us, even a response of praise with our whole lives. It's funny or, or sad, really, that different kinds of churches will either emphasize the one over the other. Either emphasizing theology to the neglect of worship or worship that neglects true expressions of who God is. Some people experience this ecstasy of worship that's a lot like a pagan, mindless, working yourself into a state of heightened emotion. You know, this is extreme that I'm talking about here. And as if the emotional response is the end in itself. 
If that, as if that's the goal. But remember, worship means what? Worthship. So if an experience doesn't rightly communicate God's worth and who he is, true expressions of who he is, then that experience is not really worship after all. And it is closer to a pagan ecstasy. On the other end of the spectrum are those who who know true things about God, but don't respond with any emotions of deep thankfulness that actually glorify him. Emotion is not the goal because a lot of false things can elicit emotion. And theology is not the end goal because God commands us to respond to this knowledge of him with praise. Theology is meant to be the fuel for praise. And verses 4 to 9 tell us about God as creator. Give thanks to him. Praise him and him alone because he alone does great wonders. He alone has the understanding or the wisdom and skill to make the heavens and to spread out the earth and make the sun and moon and stars. He is God. He is worthy of our praise, our our continual thanks. How amazing is it that he, that he, that when we think of how glorious, high and holy that God is, how amazing is it that he knows you? He knows you and through Jesus loves you. He has a love toward you that is steadfast and endures forever. The psalm began with the goodness of God. And now verses 4 through 9 speak of his power and wisdom in creation. And there's a connection because we remember in Genesis that each point of creation, God pronounced it good. From this, James Boyce gives three implications concerning God's good creation. He says we should be thankful for it, we should delight in it, and we should treat it responsibly. Okay, if you're a parent and one of your children finally gets their driver's license and you decide, not that this is a good thing, and you decide to give them their first car, what would you say, what would it say about you if they didn't thank you for this gift? What would it communicate if they continually continually complained about it? And even though you showed them how to take care of it, they, they left trash in it or drove it recklessly and dented it and never changed the oil, doing all sorts of things that eventually left it undrivable. There's a connection between you And the gifts that you give, and the same is true of God. His creation speaks of Him. And in giving it to us, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be Gnostics. A lot of Christians just have this platonic Gnostic view, physical bad, spiritual good. No. He created a physical world and pronounced it good. It's good. We should delight in it. We should enjoy it. We're, man was told to Take care of it. Subdue it. Rule over it. Have dominion. So, we shouldn't be like Gnostics and call the physical bad. 
It's meant for our enjoyment. It's a provision. We should delight in it. Not to the point of of ignoring or replacing God, but in appreciation to the one who made it with such beauty and glory. Of all people, think of it, of all people, Christians should be the best of all or the right kind of environmentalists. Not worshiping the creation, but worshiping the creator through a thankful delight and responsible care for what he's given to us. Okay, then in verses 10 to 24, we see the history of God's goodness to Israel. Verses 10 to 15 speak of God's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. Verse 16 says that he led them through the wilderness. Verses 17 to 20 show God fighting their battles and conquering their enemies. And verses 21 to 24, his provision of a promised land. This history is a message. We read of of deliverance from Egypt, right? And the wilderness wanderings all throughout Scripture. It's repeated as a matter of thankful praise all, all over the Old Testament. And it's not only the reality of their history, but it's a picture of a greater deliverance from a greater bondage. It speaks of God's presence leading us in our wanderings and that he will defeat our enemies, that he has defeated our greatest enemy, that he will and has provided for us. Look at verses 22 to 25. See the reference to Christ. He is the suffering servant. The one who looks upon our humble estate. That's part of Mary's song, right? Rescues us from our foes. Giving us the true bread from heaven. In Isaiah 41, we we read, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. The servant songs in Isaiah, they speak of a Messiah to come. The reality of this offspring to be Jesus. In Galatians, he teaches, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, and Paul says, through the inspired word of God, and to your offspring who is Christ. Jacob, or Israel, is the offspring of Abraham. But Paul tells us that the one who is ultimately Israel is Jesus, the Christ. And he goes on to conclude that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's a glorious truth, isn't it? We are the people of God. It's not these two separate people groups, Israel and the church, and we read about them in the Old Testament, or we read a psalm like this and think, well, that's them, and this is us. No, this is our history. We're grafted into that. 
This is our reality. Okay, now bring this back to verse 22 of Psalm 136. Who is the heritage to Israel, God's servant? You. If you are in Christ, then you are a heritage to Israel. You are an heir according to God's covenant promise. And Isaiah would continue to say, to the offspring of Abraham, and therefore to all who are in Christ, you're my friend. You're my servant. I've chosen you, not cast you off. So, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 136 is not a disconnected song that's only about an ancient people who need to give thanks to God. And it's not simply a pattern for our praise. No, it's about Jesus who remembered us in our lowest state. It's about, it's about the one who rescues us from the ultimate enemy of sin and death, crushing the head of, of our ultimate foe and giving himself, giving himself as the bread of life. And if you are in Christ, this is your history. This is your history as well. So, okay, so are you ready? Are you ready to sing the chorus again? So, Give thanks to the God of heaven. And the people replied. Let's pray together. Oh, our great and glorious God, we give thanks. Not only for the good that you do, but because you are good. You are the God of gods and the Lord of lords. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by you through Jesus and for him. So we praise you and give you thanks that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. We give thanks that he is the head of the body, the church, that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he is preeminent. And as our Advent celebration approaches, we give thanks. We give thanks that God, all of your fullness was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That he is truly man and truly God. And through him and his blood that was shed on the cross, we are reconciled to you. Because of this, your steadfast love for us endures forever. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name, we thank you and pray. Amen.